Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible. Jumpstart your Bible study with more than 8,000 study notes from Dr. Jeremiah to help you discover what the Bible says, what it means, and what it means for you. Available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print. For more details or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. Welcome to Turning Point. Dealing with life's troubles is no fun and sometimes downright discouraging. But is there ever an upside to problems? Today, Dr. David Jeremiah explains why oftentimes the answer is yes, especially when they occur in the lives of believers. From 10 questions Christians are asking, here's David to introduce his message, Why Do Christians Have So Many Problems? Well, thank you for joining us today for Turning Point. You may be among those who have heard that once you become a Christian, your problems go away. I don't know too many practicing Christians that believe that. In fact, I know a lot of them would say, when I got saved, when I gave my heart to Christ, I had got more problems than I'd ever had in my life because now I had uh, kind of joined the opposite team. And all the people that used to be my friends on the other team looked at me kind of with a jaundiced eye, and life got hard. Well, today we're going to talk about one of the reasons why, perhaps even more than one reason why, we get problems as Christians. From the 40th chapter of Genesis, a tremendous story that I hope will be an encouragement to you. You know, sometimes when we know a little bit more about what God's up to, it's a lot easier to understand how to live life every day. That would be my hope and goal for this message. And uh, before we get started, let me remind you of the um, special little book that's available as a resource for this month. It's called 10 Questions That Christians Are Asking. It's this series in print, um, way more than what I'm talking about every day because I don't have time to say everything that's in the chapters. But the basics of what I'm teaching on the radio during this month is in this book. It's a hardcover book. It's, it's a beautiful little addition to your library. But most of all, it's there for you to review, to rehearse, to be available to people who may have questions that are answered in this book, we'd love for you to have it. Here's how you can get your copy. Send a gift of any size to Turning Point during this month and ask for the book, and we'll send it to you. And uh, when you send a gift, do your best, but it's not the size of the gift that we're interested in. It's your investment in this ministry, so do your best, and uh, we'll send the book to you when you ask for it. Well, let's get started with this question. Why do Christians have so many problems? On November 27, 1965, Howard Rutledge parachuted into the hands of the North Vietnamese. When his fighter plane exploded under heavy anti-aircraft fire. The story of his subsequent seven-year captivity was popularized a few years after this when it was put in a book called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. I remember getting that book and reading it from cover to cover. On December 1st, just a few days after his capture, Rutledge was placed in cell two in Heartbreak Hotel, the name given to one of the prisons in Hanoi. He tells in vivid language in his book of the pain of his imprisonment. He wrote, When the door slammed and the key turned in that rusty iron lock, a feeling of utter loneliness swept over me. 
I lay down on the cold cement slab in my six-by-six prison. The smell of human excrement burned by nostrils. A rat as large as a small cat scampered across the slab beside me. The walls and the floors and ceilings were caked with filth. Bars covered a tiny window high above the door. I was cold and hungry. My body ached with swollen joints and sprained muscles. It's hard to describe what solitary confinement can do to unnerve and defeat a man. You quickly tire of standing or sitting down, sleeping or being awake. There are no books, no papers, no pencils, no magazines. The only colors that you see are drab gray and dirty brown. Months or years may go by when you don't see the sunrise or the moon, green grass or flowers. You are locked in alone and silent in your filthy little cell, breathing stale, rotten air and trying somehow to keep your sanity intact. I remember back when I read that the first time and when I read it again recently, the question that comes into our minds whenever we read something like that about a believer is, why would God allow something like this to happen in someone's life? Why would something as evil ever take place in anyone's life, the life of a Howard Rutledge or anyone for that matter? Why would God allow problems and prisons and excruciating circumstances to hurt a person and bring them to the very edge of their lives? Before he was finished writing his book, Howard Rutledge would tell of the things that God did in his life while he was in prison. He would help us understand that never does a problem come into our life that there isn't some purpose behind it that we may not know. And it was that way with Joseph, whose life we find in the 40th chapter of Genesis. Eleven years have passed in Joseph's life since he was sold into Egypt by his brothers, if you know the story. As we look in on his life now, he's probably 27, 28 years old, and he is serving as the attache to Potiphar, the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's court. It's a very important and prestigious position for a Jewish man to hold in the Egyptian government. Genesis chapter 39, the chapter previous to the one to which we've opened today, tells the story of Joseph being thrown into prison. Potiphar's wife had tried to seduce Joseph, and in spite of the fact that he did not yield to her temptation and expressed his faithfulness to Potiphar and to God, Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph and had him thrown into the royal prison by Potiphar himself. Now the scripture says that shortly after Joseph was incarcerated, two additional prisoners joined him. Pharaoh apparently had become angry with his chief butler and baker and had them thrown into the same prison where Joseph was. Now what they did to be thrown into prison we are not told. But we do know that the role of the chief butler was to taste all of the food and wine that was served to the king so that if there was poison in it, he would die and the king would live. I don't think anyone ever campaigned for that particular job in the kingdom. Must have been an assignment. The baker made all of the food that was eaten by the king and in the court. And so we have to assume, since both men were put in prison, that on one particular night, the two of them had served up some pretty bad grub to the king. Now they're in prison. 
And the scripture says that shortly after their sentence has begun, Joseph notices on their face early one morning a troubled look. And he asks them, why are you so sad? And they answer him in concert that they'd had a terrible dream. And we know it has significance, but we don't know how to interpret the dream. And Joseph answered them in verse 8 of chapter 40, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me the dream, and I will interpret for you with God's help. Now in the butler's dream, which is recorded in verses 9 through 13 of the chapter, we see three branches of a vine blossom and produce grapes. The butler presses the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and serves the wine to him. Joseph explains to the butler that the dream is meant to convey that in three days, the three branches, the butler would be restored by Pharaoh to his original position as chief butler in the kingdom. After hearing the interpretation of the butler's dream, the baker can't wait to tell Joseph his dream, but he would have been better off to have waited. The baker said that in his dream he saw three white baskets on his head, each filled with baked goods. But the birds of the air came and snatched the baked goods away, verses 16 and 17. And Joseph explains to the baker that the three baskets are three days, and at the end of the three days the baker will be hung by Pharaoh, and the birds will pluck away his flesh. And three days later, to be sure, it was Pharaoh's birthday. And he had a big party and celebrated his birthday by hiring back his old butler and hanging the baker, just as Joseph said he would do. Now this is all very interesting information and a rather intriguing story, but what does it have to do with Joseph? Look down in your Bibles to verses 14 and 15 of the 40th chapter where we have the words of Joseph to the butler just before he was going to be released from prison to go back to his original job as the butler for Pharaoh. Here's Joseph's words to him in verses 14 and 15. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me, make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into this dungeon. So Joseph says to the butler on his way out of prison, when you get back to the king, be sure and tell him about me and try to get me out of here because I don't belong here. He's not complaining. He's not whining. He's just making a statement. He didn't do anything to get in there that was worthy of his imprisonment, and he asks the butler to help him when he gets back. Now, scroll down in your Bibles to the 23rd verse of the 40th chapter and read these words. And the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. If you'll look in your Bibles at the first verse of the 41st chapter, you will discover that Joseph was forgotten by the butler for two full years. Why did the butler forget Joseph? I don't think it was a lapse of memory. I think it was a purposeful forgetfulness. I think the butler didn't want to go back to bad memories. He didn't want to remind Pharaoh of a past experience. He didn't want to call into question Pharaoh's right to have Joseph thrown into prison. 
So the scripture says that for two whole years, Joseph's name was never mentioned in the kingdom by the butler. And from this story of Joseph and all the circumstances surround it, I would like to suggest five reasons why God allows problems in our lives. And I'll kind of tell the additional information about the stories we go along and give you the principles so that we can get them down in our memory, in our notes, and hopefully hold on to them for a time when we may need them or when we know somebody may need them. First of all, reason number one, problems often provide greater opportunities for us. Problems sometimes are allowed by God in our lives to provide us with greater opportunities. And we as God's children need to learn how to look for the possibilities in our problems. It's interesting as you look back over the history of the Bible, for instance, that some incredible things came out of prisons. There's a whole section of books in the New Testament called the prison epistles. Those were letters that were written by Paul while he was in prison. Some of the most incredible letters in the New Testament written by an apostle who was languishing in a Roman prison. We have studied the book of Revelation and we found such great hope in that book as we look to the future. But the book of Revelation was written by John while he was being exiled, basically imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And it was in prison that John Bunyan saw the great allegory that later became the immortal Pilgrim's Progress one of the great literary pieces in ecclesiastical history. Sometimes prisons are a great source of opportunity for us and for others who are blessed by what God does in and through us as we negotiate the difficult situations in life. Joseph is about to learn that in his prison experience he has not been forgotten by God and that God in his mercy sees him. And it is while he is in prison that God brings him into a relationship with the one man who would ultimately be able to link Joseph to his boyhood dreams and to his place in the palace and to his freedom from the prison. If Joseph had not been where he was, when he was there, he never would have met the butler. And it was the butler who was the link between Joseph and Pharaoh. I remember years ago before his death hearing Charles Colson speak at an Evangelical Association dinner. As many of you know, he was imprisoned for his part in the Watergate scandal under the presidency of Richard Nixon. As he closed his speech the night that I heard him, he gave these words, which I understood later were pretty much the closing to most of his speeches during those days. And here's what he said. He said, my lowest days as a Christian, and there were low ones, have been far more fulfilling and rewarding to me than all the days of the glory in the White House. He said, in prison, I learned to know God and to walk with God. And I learned the value of fellowship and oneness with other brothers in Christ. And it was out of that experience in prison that he founded Prison Fellowship. Had he never been in that situation, he never would have caught the vision for what God was going to do. And over these last years since Prison Fellowship was founded, 
literally hundreds and hundreds of prisoners have come to Christ. So sometimes when you're in the midst of a problem, if you're not careful, you miss the fact that God is up to something. He's got you in a place where you don't want to be so that he can prepare you for something greater. Number two, problems promote spiritual maturity. In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey speaks about Joseph, and he says, if anyone had a valid reason to be disappointed in God, it was Joseph, whose valiant stabs at goodness brought him nothing but trouble. I mean, he interpreted a dream to his brothers, and they threw him in a cistern. He resisted a sexual advance and landed in the Egyptian prison. There he interpreted a dream to save a cellmate's life, and the cellmate promptly forgot about him for two years. I wonder, said Yancey, as Joseph languished for his virtue in an Egyptian dungeon, did questions like, is God unfair, is God silent, is God hidden, did those questions occur to him? Now remember, Joseph is one of two people in the Old Testament about whom there is no evil report given. There's no record of his having violated his walk with God. But Yancey goes on in his analysis of this in his book, Disappointment with God, to give us another viewpoint of what is happening to Joseph at this moment. He writes, shift for a moment to the perspective of God the parent. Had he deliberately pulled back to allow Joseph's faith to reach a new level of maturity? And could this be why Genesis devotes more space to Joseph than to any other person in the entire book? Through all of his trials, Joseph learned to trust, not that God would prevent hardship, but that he would redeem hardship. Choking back tears, Joseph tried to explain this to his murderous brothers when he said, you guys intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. As you rewind Joseph's life, it's not hard to realize that he probably had a very soft life as a child. I mean, you read about him as a young boy. He's not out in the field with his brothers. He's at home with his father. He's the pampered favorite son of the family wearing that colored coat that was given to him. And if God was going to use Joseph, he would have to toughen him up. He would have to make him ready to be prime minister of Egypt during a worldwide famine. And the psalmist alludes to the hardening process in Psalm 105, verses 17 and 18, where Joseph is mentioned by name. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons. Now, I remember when I studied that passage that there's a marginal rendering to that verse, and it goes like this. His soul came into iron. And I read an old English translation that translated it this way. An iron entered into his soul. Joseph went to prison, and iron entered into his soul. When he came out of prison, he was an iron-souled man. He was a man of wisdom and courage and determination, and he acts every bit like a born leader in Egypt. When he ascends to the high place of government by himself, he carries a nation that is foreign to him through a terrible famine without one single sign of any revolt. 
He was prepared for the hardship of famine because he experienced the hardship of prison. And God wants and needs today, men and women, some iron-souled saints. He really needs some men and women who are not going to wilt when the pressure's on. And the only way iron ever gets into our souls is when we go through the pressure cooker. (laughs) It kind of gives some new meaning to several key passages that I want to give to you just so you can write down their addresses and have them available for you later. Romans 5, 3, we also glory in tribulation or problems, knowing that problems produce perseverance and perseverance produces character. And Hebrews 12, 11 says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And James 1, 2, and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or problems, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, and the word there is really the word endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials or problems, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of these passages say the same thing, that when you're under pressure, when you're in the pressure cooker, whether it's persecutions or trials or problems or wherever you are and whatever you want to call them, when you're in the midst of that, one of the reasons God allows that is to bring you greater inward strength, to toughen you up, to make you ready to face the challenges that are yet ahead in your life. I often think that sometimes when we're out trying to help people, we need to be careful that we don't rescue them from this process. I mean, I'm a rescuer. I don't know about the rest of you. I mean, I got children and grandchildren. I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure if there's some way I can make their life easier and better, I wanna do it. I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. It's just who I am and how I function. But suppose for a moment that Reuben, the oldest son in Joseph's family, had been able to do what he wanted to do. Remember when Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers? Reuben wanted to get him out and get him home because he knew this was going to break his dad's heart. But he didn't do it. If Reuben had been allowed to rescue Joseph, we would never be reading the story of Joseph today. Because Joseph had to be in the pit on his way to the palace. And Reuben was kept by the hand of God from rescuing him. And I often think that that story is a wonderful picture of what happened on the cross. You know, the Bible says that there could have been many angels to come and rescue Jesus, but aren't you glad he wasn't rescued? He paid the penalty for our sin because he refused to come down from the cross until the job was done. And when he had fully died and they took him down, he had accomplished what he came to do, which was to pay the penalty for our sin. Most of us are rescuers at heart. We really are. I know I am. 
But sometimes the things we try to rescue people from uh, would be better off if we left them alone to experience it so that it could accomplish the thing that God has in mind. Well, tomorrow we'll talk some more about why Christians have problems. Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to talk about this question. Why don't my prayers get answered? And then on Friday, is there a sin that God cannot forgive? These messages are meant to help you with the questions that you have and the questions people ask you. There are answers. The answers are in the Bible. You need to know where to find them, and we're going to be your um, tour guide during this series, help you find the answers to these questions. Be sure and ask for your copy of the book, 10 Questions That Christians Are Asking When You Send Your Gift to Turning Point During This Month. Your gift helps us buy airtime and produce programs. That's where the money goes. It doesn't come to us. I don't get that money. It goes to those two things paying for airtime, and producing the program. And without you, we couldn't do that. It's because of your faithfulness all across this nation in supporting this ministry that we're able to do what we do and continue to see it grow around this country and around the world. So thanks for your investment. We want to add value to your life, so be sure and ask for the book when you send your gift today. We'll see you right here tomorrow. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, ask for your copy of David's hardcover book, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking and learn to live with greater confidence. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices, or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries for instant access to our programs and resources. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.org radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking, here on Turning Point. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point, we would love to offer you two free ways to stay connected. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash magazine for a subscription to our monthly Turning Points magazine. Each exclusive issue is filled with encouraging articles and daily devotionals to strengthen your spiritual walk. You can also sign up to receive our daily email devotional and be a part of our community of friends who receive daily encouragement delivered straight to their inbox from Dr. Jeremiah. Written in a thought-provoking manner, this concise yet profound daily devotional delivers the refreshment and focus you need as you go about in today's world. You can join the more than 600,000 monthly subscribers who are building their faith each month through these free resources. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Two verses in Proverbs appear right together and they seem to contradict one another. One says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. So which should we do when we hear someone making a fool of himself? 
Well, it depends on how we answer. If we argue, we become as big a fool as the other. But if we wait for the right opportunity and share a word of wisdom that will help, then we have done the person a favor. We need wisdom from God to know when to answer and when to remain quiet. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's wisdom on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.